Welcome to the Stone Choir Podcast. I am Corey J. Mahler. And I'm Woe. Before we get into today's episode proper, just a few housekeeping matters. First, the feedback form we mentioned in the last episode. We have already received some feedback. We've added some suggestions to our list of future topics. Thank you for the feedback so far. For anyone else who has feedback, please visit stone-choir.com feedback. Very simple form. Fill it out. Send it. We will take a look at it. Additionally, on the website, you can also look for the Telegram channel. You can send us feedback that way or ask a question if you would prefer to get a faster answer. The feedback form does not currently include a way for you to include an email address. Maybe I'll add that, make it optional. But if you have a question and want an answer, the Telegram channel is probably the fastest way to get that. And then third and last for the housekeeping matters, we would just ask that you, this is a prayer request, we would ask that you pray for us if you remember on Tuesday morning, since we record on Tuesdays, or whenever during the week. The time certainly does not matter for God. Just that our audio equipment would continue to function and that the gremlins would be kept at bay. We haven't had any significant issues recently. We've seemingly managed to get over that hump, but every time we turn everything on and it actually works, it's a pleasant surprise. So anyway, that is the end of the housekeeping matters for now. So on to the actual episode. In this episode, we will be discussing the issue of copyright and intellectual property from a Christian perspective. And so what we are advocating is that there needs to be a return to Christians acting as Christians, even in the marketplace, in the public square. Whatever the purpose of copyright may have originally been, and we will get into that in this episode, it has certainly not panned out. It has become something entirely other, and it is no longer beneficial to the church if it ever, in fact, was beneficial to the church. And so, the current copyright regime, as it exists, is something that we as Christians have inherited from the culture that comes with certain presumptions. Those are imported into the church along with the ideas of copyright and other attendant things, and they are actively harmful. And so essentially our conclusion, and we're not going to bury the lead, that is not really our style, that's not the purpose. Our conclusion is that copyright is harmful to the church, and that materials should be made available freely for all. Now this is not to say that authors, translators, etc. should not be compensated for their time and their efforts. It is to say that the current regime is not workable and is in fact wicked. It is possible both to compensate those who create the material and simultaneously not hinder the spread of the gospel. That, as Christians, should be our goal. Today on Stone Choir, we are going to be talking about paywalling God. Uh, usually we don't make up the title until after we're done, but I think that's what we're going to go with today. I think everybody knows what a paywall is. A paywall is what you see on a website where you go and you, know, you click, 
three articles and then it says you need to log in if you want to read more and in order to log in you have to be paying the money so there's content there it's already written it's done it's available but not to you unless you give them money and so paywalling on the internet is something because the internet is fault fundamentally free if something is online it doesn't cost anything for you to get to it inherently and so a paywall is an artificial barrier of cost in order to monetize your attention so you have to pay to read the thing uh we're going to get to the the impact of the internet had in a little bit but first i want to just begin by briefly recapping the history of publishing itself uh, as we talked about three episodes ago on the clarity of scripture before bibles were being mass produced by gutenberg they were really inaccessible there, there was very little of theology that was available outside of monasteries or the academia. Uh, once mass production of books became a thing, that radically changed. So it, just to re briefly recap, you know, we began with scrolls, long parchment rolls like you had in the Old Testament. And by the time we get to the New Testament, paper, uh, papyrus had been coming from Egypt and so the Greeks began to write more and more stuff on papyrus because it was much cheaper uh, and easier to use in some ways. Not long after that, the shift came from scrolls to codices, which are basically the, the very first books. And you have a binding with a bunch of leaves of paper uh, or you know, papyrus that may have writing on both sides, may not, and they're bound together with a spine. If you looked at the very first codices, it basically looks like a book. So those were still all handmade, so they were incredibly expensive because you have the, the expertise of the scribes, you have the expertise of those making either the, the uh, parchment or the, the papyrus. Um, and so every time a new book was made, it basically cost as much as the first book being made. And there was a gradual change technologically. By the 13th century, we had paper being produced in large quantities in Europe. Um, it had been produced in the Middle East and in Asia for various purposes, but it finally began being used for printed material. So that reduced at least the cost of goods, because by the 13th century, uh, the paper was about nearly an order of magnitude cheaper than the papyrus that it was replacing. So that meant the books could get gradually less expensive, but they were still handmade. They were still very rare, relatively. When Gutenberg came along and put together movable type and the press, suddenly mass production of books and printed material, pamphlets and things, was really possible for the first time in history at relatively low cost. And so one of the first things we want to talk about in this episode, just very briefly, is the economic concept of marginal cost. That is, how much does it cost to make the last copy of a thing? So when you have something like a, a codex or a scroll, the cost of making another one of those is basically the same as cost, cost to make the first one because you have to go to great lengths. You have very expensive materials. There's no economy of scale there. Um, the only thing that doesn't have to be done twice is the original authorship. So once it's given either you know by God through the, the authors, in the case of the, the Old New Testament, or some other source of writing, duplicating costs basically as much as making the first one. And so the marginal cost of making another copy switches from where 
Every copy is basically a prototype. Everyone is a one-off to the point where when you make, you know, today, if you want to print t-shirts, you can have a custom t-shirt made. And the startup cost for getting a t-shirt made is where most of the money goes for a small run. You know, they might charge you 50 bucks and set up and maybe more if they have to do some sort of something special. And then they, on their end, they have setup costs just based on the complexity of moving their machinery over to produce your item instead of someone else's. So, you know, maybe you want 30 t-shirts cost. It's going to, you know, it's going to cost you say 15 bucks a piece. If you want a hundred t-shirts printed, it might only cost you 10. If you want 500 t-shirts printed, it might only cost you six or seven bucks for exactly the same t-shirt. And that's because of the economies of scale, because doing the very first one with all the setup is very expensive. You don't amortize those costs across a large run. So what Gutenberg changed was the ability to make multiple copies a whole lot cheaper than it took to make the very first one. And when that change occurred, it fundamentally altered civilization, really. I mean, it's a reason that everyone knows that it named Gutenberg, because suddenly people began mass-producing not only important stuff like, you know, Luther's Bible, for example, but much less important things like just pamphlets where people had ideas, they would, you know, bang a few pages out, and it didn't cost much to go to the press and have it reproduced for you. And so around in this period was the first time that folks began to have the inkling that the desire for something like what we today call copyright. And so the this where the law comes into this, um, and we want to talk for a few minutes about how that came about and how it differs from some of the other laws that we have in our lives. So when it comes to copyright law, we really get the beginnings of copyright law in England in the 1600s. You have the first act would be the licensing of the Press Act of 1662. And really there's some irony here because whatever copyright is today, whatever it has become, that original act was in large part an attempt to deal with lascivious material and other undesirable things that were being produced and distributed. And so the goal of that act was you basically needed a stamp, and of course we can get into the, the Stamp Act in the U.S., it's sort of tangentially related, but you needed proof that you were permitted to publish this thing. And so the goal was censorship. In the positive sense here, of course, because they were attempting to get rid of material you did not want distributed. However, copyright very quickly became something entirely different. It became a way for, it was a way for authors to assert their rights in their work. Now, that may initially sound like it is a good thing, but it very quickly becomes something, a very different animal. And so the first really international copyright law would be the Berne Convention in 1886. The U.S. incidentally did not join that until 1989. Took us a long time to decide we wanted to be part of that scheme. But if you're looking at the origins of copyright law, we'll look at the U.S. because obviously most listeners to this podcast would be U.S., would be Americans, and so that's what will be relevant. Very early on, we have the Copyright Act of 1790. That's been amended a number of times. Most recently, the major overhaul would be 1976 Copyright Act. And so what that provides for is a work is protected for the life of the author plus 70 years. 
or if it is a work for hire or a work of someone who is anonymous or pseudonymous, then it is the shorter of publication plus 95 or 120 years from creation. Now, we could get into the fact that, interestingly, it used to be 75 or 100. It was bumped 20 years by the Sonny Bono Act, otherwise known as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, for reasons that I would hope would be obvious. Large corporations have played quite a role in pushing for copyright because they have been the ones who have largely benefited from this. And in fact, as things have gone on, authors have benefited less and less, and those who have actually owned the printing presses have benefited more and more. So it's gone into corporate coffers instead of the pockets of the actual authors. It's worth pointing out that that's, that's wildly longer than what Congress originally did in 1790. Oh, One of yes. the first acts that they passed was 14 years for a publishing or, of a book depending. or something similar. Yeah. yeah. So even those, those numbers that today we take for granted and you know, we have to do a lot of work in, in our lives and in the church in particular, which is what this episode is about, to work around them. But the notice, the notion that if someone writes something in your lifetime, it will literally never be available to anyone without paying that person is a modern novelty, really almost within our lifetimes. It's, it's, it's bizarre, and it's not... We assume because it's what we inherited, what we were stuck with, that that's just the way it is, but it is not natural, and I think that's the key point about this whole thing, is that it's not natural law. It's a it's an artificial construct that was intended originally for a desirable purpose, but it didn't necessarily live up to that promise. Yep. Malum prohibitum versus malum in se. And may as well just address that now. A malum in se is a wrong because it is wrong in itself. So murder is a malum in se. A malum prohibitum is a wrong that is wrong because it is prohibited. Thankfully, this Latin is very straightforward. Basically the same word. An example of a malum prohibitum, usually the one used, is a parking violation. Is it wrong or evil in itself to park where the farmer's market is going to be in an hour and not move your car? No. It makes you a bit of a dick. You shouldn't do that. But... It is not wrong or evil in itself. Murder is. And so copyright law is dealing 100% with mala prohibita. It is not dealing with things that are evil in themselves. It is dealing with things that are wrong because they are prohibited. Now, there are those who will bring up the idea of theft, and we will get into that more. We're not dealing with theft here. I am not stealing from you if I have a copy of your novel. And we can get into, of course, the, the workman is worth his wages, but if you actually pay attention to the, that verse and related verses, what is it saying? It's saying those who hire the workman are supposed to pay the workman. So yes, if you enjoy or find value in the content being produced by someone, you should probably kick a few dollars that person's way. That's that is entirely reasonable. The copyright system, as it has grown up and been designed, does not accomplish that. And we can look at historical concrete example. As I said, in England, you have the 1662 Act, and then you have various other conventions. There's the Statute of Anne, 1710, is really the first sort of modern copyright act in England. That's our 1790 was based on the 1710. 
compare what happened with academia and authors in England, in the UK, versus what happened in Germany. Germany did not have, for a number of reasons, a copyright act. The earliest in Germany was 1837 in Prussia, and of course, that couldn't be enforced in Germany until 1871, because that's when Germany became unified. What was the consequence? What happened because of that in England versus Germany? In Germany in 1843, these were the numbers that I could find for a specific year, about 14,000 publications went to press in Germany in 1843. Bear in mind, Germany at this time was poorer, more fractured, less united than England. England, wealthier, more united, had 1,000. More than an order of magnitude different. And not only that, the compensation that the German authors would have received would have been six months to a year of their salary. Many of the authors, of course, would have been academics. They had the education and the time to write. Whereas in England, it would have been one-tenth. So you have to think of the difference in the kind of quality and not just the quality of the works being produced, <laughs> the sort of quality of life you're going to have. And I have a, a quote here that I just want to read to give a general color or flavor to this. This is from Walter Besant, who was the founder and chairman of the Society of Authors in England. This is him describing being a writer in England in the 1800s. There is a lifelong penury in it, starvation, suicide, a debtor's prison. Hard and grinding work for miserable pay, a cruel taskmaster. Work done to order, paid for by the yard. As for the wished-for life among books, these unfortunate poets could not afford to buy books. As for freedom, quiet, ease, they never had any of it. Even the joy of composition, which one would think could not be taken from them, they could never enjoy. Because they wrote to order, and what they were told to write. They were paid servants, they lived in a garret, they never rose out of poverty and misery. They were buried in a pauper's corner. Keep in mind, this is a gentleman who was an author, founded and represented, chaired a society of authors, living about just shy of 200 years after the first Copyright Act in England. Now compare that with what I just told you about how much money was being made by authors in Germany. You can see very clearly that even early on, relatively early on, the supposed good of the copyright laws, the copyright regime, was not actually coming to pass. Authors were not benefiting from it. The publishers were. And, Ex exactly. And, just, and just to highlight explicitly, those German authors were making an order of magnitude more money for printing, for publishing and writing books that could be freely copied without any compensation to them. Yes. They could be what we would call today ripped off for what they produced that they were making 10 times more or more greater than the men who were so-called protected by copyright. So as you said, there was no actual protection for the author, which was how it was sold. And I think one of the things that is missed when we look at, at American history, at U.S. history, is that the United States started in the early 1600s. It didn't start in the late 1700s. Yes. And most of the people who were in charge in the late 1700s, many of their ancestors have been here 150 years. But a lot of the changes that were occurring on the continent post-enlightenment, and, and to be clear, America, while many of the things that were done in the Constitution were based on the Enlightenment, 
the colonies were pre-enlightenment, so all of those ideas and things like copyright had to be imported by foreigners. It was not Americans on U.S. on colonial soil who came up with these things. These were ideas that were novel that were being experimented with in Europe and then being brought here. And the guys who ended up winning the uh, Constitutional Convention and overthrowing the Articles of Confederation liked a lot of that stuff. And so they were experimenting with these new ideas. I don't think that they necessarily had ill intent when they adopted it. I think that they thought it was novel and they were trying to solve a problem. But in the spirit of science, if you try an experiment and it doesn't achieve the desired result, that's a successful experiment, but only in the sense that it has succeeded in proving that your thesis was wrong. And unfortunately, laws don't work that way. There's no expiration date on a typical law. So when we adopted copyright, it just was stuck. They just sat there like a barnacle. And people got used to it and just assumed, well, it must be doing what they intended for it to do. And as you've laid out clearly, that was never the case. And there's a, there was a clear A-B experiment in different European countries where intellectual and, and literal literacy levels may have been similar, but the output was decidedly not. And one of the key dividing factors was that the English were prohibited and the Americans were prohibited and the Germans were permitted to really reproduce any idea with or without without attribution. You take it, you hear it, you see it, you copy it, it's yours. You can do what you want with it. And today we call that theft, but that was what caused an explosion of intellectual creativity virtually unparalleled in, in Western history. The Reformation quite simply would not have been possible if Germany had had an English-style regime for copyright. Because the education level of the middle to upper class in Germany was directly the result of the lack of a copyright regime. Because all these materials could be reproduced and disseminated far and wide. For instance, let's say even if you were living in Prussia where they had a copyright regime, literally all you had to do was cross the border and you could do whatever you wanted with regard because there was no copyright over there. And so the ideas of the Reformation were able to spread because you had, one, the ability to print them, two, the right, or at least the permission to distribute them, and three, people to read them. That did not exist really anywhere else in the world. So even in England, it took quite a while for similar ideas to the Reformation to gain any real traction. And even then, it was largely political. But what we're really dealing with here is the foundations of capitalism, because that's what you had starting in England and the U.S. at this time. And so along with that comes the commodification of knowledge, information, things like that, which is a totally foreign way of looking at things to the medieval and earlier mindset. Because those living in earlier times would have seen knowledge and information, these things, they saw them as a product of the whole, a product of the nation, of the society. It wasn't seen just as the, the product of one person's mind that he could claim exclusively as his own and do with as he pleased. Because there was more of a communitarian outlook. Yeah. The, the term intellectual property is an oxymoron. It, it's an absurdity on its face. If... If I have an idea, which is what this podcast is about, it's your ideas and my ideas, that we're sharing with people, we don't have a paywall. We'll never have a paywall. I was I just going to say, no paywall. For this. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's no paywall here. And and it's not it's not that there's no commercial viability to what we do. It's that we believe that what we are saying may have some value to other people. And that's not putting a price tag on it. That's saying that if you think that anything that we say has any value, we want you to hear it. And if you agree, that's your idea. You don't need to credit us. If you think the same thing that we think about anything, that's your idea. It's in your mind. There's no transfer of property there. It's it's a sharing of ideas. And so this regime that has emerged in the West in the last two centuries with the idea that the, an idea itself can be property. I will do a future episode where we, we look at the Ten Commandments and how they treat property. Because the whole thing, the, the, the entire second table is about property. It's about real property, which is real estate, land, and it's about chattels. It's about the things that you own in your household. Intellectual property is a legal fiction. It, it is not, it's not a, an actual thing. It's, there's, we, we've been raised in a society where we just assume that, well, like you said, you know, the, the, the workers do as wages. What's funny is that <laughs> the reading that most people apply to that today is Keynesianism. They want to take Keynes and the labor theory of value and try to put it back into scripture, which is comical on so many levels. It's, <laughs> that deserves an episode. It's so evil. Like, it's just insane. But when you hire someone, you owe them. You should pay them what you agreed to. The fact that someone worked really hard on something doesn't make the thing that they worked really hard on worth anything. You know, Corey, you and I spend, you know, a number of hours a week preparing for this. We spend a bunch of money on equipment and setup. Does that make the podcast worth anything? No. That's those are sunk costs. That is that is a cost that we put into the thing. In our case, never expecting to receive anything. We'll never receive anything for it because even if, you know, again, this is never this is not commercially viable, but even if it were as a matter of principle, we want <laughs> we think that these are ideas we're spreading. And I think that's what's really funny is that when when TED Talks came along, all that stuff is free. All that content is free. Now they I think they charge you to like actually physically attend because they're great networking events. But the videos and the contents that are produced in TED Talks where the tagline is ideas worth spreading, it's all free to anyone in the world. Copyright is the opposite. Copyright is the idea of saying you have an idea that's worth locking up. That's worth keeping in a box until someone hands you money and then you can dole it out to them piecemeal. And the reason we're talking about this today is that this has profound theological import because there are arguments to be made about the copyright regime in general. Obviously, we both think it's illegitimate, but the particular case that's so vitally important for us as a church, particularly with the internet today, is whether we should continue doing these things as we've always done them. And so the reason I mentioned marginal cost up front is that when the internet came about, the marginal cost of reproducing an idea digitally is literally zero. It's, it's, there's no cost. When, when you say you give someone a file, you're not giving them a file. You're making a copy of a file and then they have it. You have the file and now they have the file. There are two files. So no property exchanged hands because that would property is inherently finite and it's inherently material. There's no such thing as, as imaginary property. I mean, that's, that's the basis of things like Meta and some of the other VR schemes where they want people to, to pay for virtual property. It's just a cash grab. It's, it's, it's gross and it's, it's capitalist and it certainly has no place in theology. So 
what happened in the church is that we went from scrolls to codices to books to mass-produced books to a publishing industry. And we're going to talk a little bit about, because we're both Missouri Synod, we're going to talk about the Missouri Synod's own captive arm, uh, Concordia Publishing House, or CPH. But this isn't about us. This isn't about Lutherans, and it's not about CPH. Every larger denomination has similar setups, or they work with others who are doing this work for them. And because we're all in the Western context, we all have the same idea, the idea of intellectual property, of if an author, author writes something, you got to pay him if you want to have access to it. And that has to happen first. You don't get the thing until you pay for it. And the notion of intellectual property theft, you know, as Corey, as you mentioned, there's, there's no theft occurring here. We want to be very explicit about this. If the marginal cost for reproducing a digital file is zero, if I give you a file and I still have the file, no one can possibly steal the file. And we're not talking about like unauthorized access to the works that a corporation keeps locked down because they're vital to its business. When someone produces what we call intellectual property, whether it's an article or a book or a podcast or a radio show or a TV program, all those things are called intellectual property. They only have value if other people see them. When you're talking about something like industrial secrets, corporate secrets, their value is that they're hidden. There's no value in a podcast that no one ever hears. That's that, that would be the most and yet worthless so many thing of them. you can imagine. <laughs> yes, thankfully ours is not a mono. I've been really <laughs> pleased with how this has taken off. But I mean, yes. we're always going to be niche, and that, that's fine. Because, again, we believe these are ideas worth spreading, and that means giving them away for free, explicitly, consciously, and intentionally. And today we live in a, an environment where the church won't do that. So just as a, a couple examples, um, Pastor Fisk, Jonathan Fisk, whom I'd mentioned previously, and uh, Pastor uh, Brian Wolfmuller have both pre previously had book deals with CPH. And then they've done additional books that they've not published with CPH. And they don't really go into it in public, but I've been told by friends who've heard them go off about the way they were treated by the church's publisher. And one of the principal objections that is, is had about these deals is the same objection that you hear from every rap artist and music artist and pretty much anyone who's in this space of work for hire and then selling the work is that the people who own the presses, the people who own the machinery of reproduction, steal away your rights, your artificial rights. So when these guys wrote their books and had CPH publish them, they thought, great, the church is going to do it. They're going to do a nice job. CPH printing is usually decent um, by modern standards anyway. What they didn't realize was that they were signing away all their intellectual property rights. So when Brian wanted to give away a couple of his books that CPH had published, CPH wouldn't let him do it. Because you know why? CPH wants to sell those. And they can only make money by selling the books. And we'll get into the making money thing, because we're not saying you can't make money on this stuff. We're saying there are ways to make money that don't involve refusing to give things away. Which only sounds contradictory, because we live in this hellscape where everything has to have a price tag up front but that's not natural it's not normal and so brian if you go to wolfmuller.co now his website he gives away most of the stuff he writes now i think everything that he's written since his cph deal you can download a pdf 
or you can buy a copy from him. And he, he charges as little as he can for the print-on-demand copy. So if you want a physical copy, he can get you one. And you have to pay for that. And that's reasonable. If you go into Barnes & Noble and you walk out with a book, you've stolen something. Because they have one fewer book in their inventory than they had before. And you have a book that you didn't pay for. If you download the same book from Brian's website and you get the PDF, no one has been denied anything. Now, I don't know if he has a tip jar. Some people do. And I think tip jars are a good thing, as, as you mentioned before. If you find value in something or if you just want to say, hey, thanks, I like this. The idea of patronage has tremendous historical merit. That's why Patreon exists today. The Patreon is a play on the word patron, where the idea that rather than having a single very wealthy benefactor paying someone to produce works of art, maybe a lot of people could get together and pay a small amount and achieve similar results. And it's worked pretty well. And the model is that you say, hey, I think this is a good idea. I'll chip in a few bucks. When they hit their thresholds, they produce the thing and make it available. That's awesome. That's, that's an entirely scalable way of doing things that allows creators, and there's no, there's no doubt that someone who's writing a book is doing something creative, just like we're doing something creative here. I mean, it takes a few hours to do it. Doesn't mean it's worth anything to charge you, but if you think, hey, I, you know, that's worth three bucks worth of entertainment to me, send them some money. That's something that could actually work, but it can only work when the property is first given away, when, when the, the non-property, when the content, which is content is kind of the modern word for that, when the, the package of whatever it is, whether it's the MP4 for this, this audio file that's about 160 megs or, you know, a 10 megabyte PDF for a book. When you get that, you now have all of the content. It's digital, which isn't necessarily as good as physical in a lot of ways. And so there's there's potentially a market to buy the physical good, even if you can get the digital one for free. And we see that all over the place today. And so there are different ways of approaching this problem than don't involve tying up sound doctrine and interesting ideas behind a paywall. We're actually discussing two different kinds of rights here, and it is probably a good idea to distinguish them quickly, just to make sure that those who are unfamiliar with this area know what is going on. When it comes to copyright, there are two kinds of rights. There are economic rights, which is what we have been discussing. And then there are what are called moral rights. Under the Berne Convention, which is the international convention to which most Western states and some others are party, there are at least two rights that you have to protect, two moral rights. Those are paternity and integrity. The right of paternity is that you have to attribute the work to the creator. The right of integrity is that the creator has to have some ability to object to destruction or alteration of the work that is then attributed to the creator. So there's a difference, for instance, between parody and putting forth a parody under the name of the original author. That would be defamation. There's a difference there. And so we're not dealing with moral rights. It's perfectly reasonable to have a system where the author has some sort of moral right where you have to attribute the work to the author, or you have to not put out false work under the author's name. That's totally different from economic rights. We're dealing with the economic rights and that part of the copyright regime. Yeah, absolutely. If someone does an adaptation of a hymn, for example, and they add a verse, or maybe they change the tune or tweak the words, it's entirely reasonable, and there's no reason why the law or even our approach as a church as Christians 
couldn't treat those separately. Just say, yes, if I took your hymn and I thought it was a great hymn, but I wanted to add a verse, I wanted to tweak something, I should give you credit for what you have done. And then I should take credit for the fact that I modified it, not both to take credit for the new work that I've done, but also to absolve you of the changes that I made to your work. And that's, as you said, those are the moral rights. It's not it's not about denying for, you know, if, if someone, and we wouldn't even care. Like I talked about us saying oh, things absolutely. to we don't people. Care. Yeah, but that's... You can waive them in the U.S., incidentally. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's part of, if you look at the Creative Commons copyright clauses, you can basically put together your own Creative Commons license that will allow you to waive effectively everything. You can waive commercial rights, you can waive attribution, uh, you can... You can effectively waive anything, but you can do a piecemeal. And they've they've created the the draft language in such a way that it's consistent with the copyright law that's trying very hard to make that impossible. Unless you're and in France. So, <laughs> you you <laughs> literally French you, you cannot waive your moral rights in France. And also there are there are rights that your heirs get and the French regime is its own special thing. It causes problems in EU law. Because it's French. Unsurprisingly. Uh, yeah. Yes. So to, just to, to get back briefly to, to the internet thing, I just want to make clear that when we're talking, the, the, the purpose of this episode is to discuss the spreading of theological content, of, of sound doctrine in particular, not only the Bible and, and variations of the Bible, but commentaries on the Bible, books expositing what is in the Bible, general theological works. The reason that we're carving these out from the broader discussion of the so-called intellectual property regime is that if these things come from God, if God gave us the Bible and God gave us reason, and we apply reason to the Bible and produce a faithful work of reason, like, for example, the Book of Concord, the idea that a man, or let alone a corporation, would say, I have a legal claim on this I will sue you if you do not give me money to have access to it in whatever form. We're asserting here that that is evil. Apart from whether or not copyright in general is evil, I think they're the same question. But even if you say, okay, well, copyright in general can have benefit for fiction authors, for example, or people making, you know, secular songs, fine. We don't care about that. But if you're saying that you can say something about God, that you can write something about God, and then you have a, a legal right to harm others financially if they don't give you money for it on um, whatever fee schedule you set. I think not only is that evil, I think it's, I think it's profoundly evil. I think it's a direct violation of the first and the second commandments. The first commandment, commandment is you, sh you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is that uh, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And in Luther's explanation on the small and large catechism, he makes clear that that's talking specifically about the discussion of theology, about not making false claims about God, and about making sure that your claims in God's name are true. Now, if you're obeying the second commandment and your claims about God are true, how are those your, how are the, is that your property? How does it belong to you, something which is true that is said about God, to encumber that in such a way that others are prohibited from having access to it is actively destructive to the gospel. What is the point of talking about God if, if you're telling the truth and other people can't hear you? Why would you pay all that? 
And yet that's precisely what we see virtually all of our churches doing. We're picking on the LCMS because it's what we are. It's our backyard. We are morally responsible for the sins of those who act in our name and with our money. Even if we're not doing it, even if we object to it, they're still doing it, and they're doing it because we are enabling and permitting, and we have not yet prevented them. Uh, This came up in 2016 at the Synodical Convention, where one of the districts proposed a synodical resolution to ask that the 1986 small catechism be placed in the public domain for this very reason, for the reason that it was a clear exposition of sound doctrine, that CPH owned the copyright to it, and that we had the right to make it freely available to the world, and that that was a moral good, that that was obedience to God to say, hey, this thing that, by the way, (laughs) was originally in German 500 years ago. So yes, we've tacked on some new content, but the idea that the translation and then the additions somehow make that something that you can have a moral claim on, a financial claim, at at the convention, it was said, let's not do that. Let's make this available to the world. We think it's valuable. And many people stood up in support of that and said, yes, this is a wonderful idea as Christians. Why wouldn't we give away the small catechism and all the things we've added to it to everyone? And what happened next was somebody handed a mic to the lawyer, and the things that he said were apparently so frightening to all the pastors in the audience that they were terrified and they were convinced that they were going to be sued if they let the small catechism be made available to the world. And The fact that that lawyer stood up and Matt Harrison handed him the mic, and then that was the end of the discussion, is an example of the sort of faithlessness and foolishness that happens when people don't have worldly understanding. But I think more profoundly, it shows that you can have something that calls itself a church that at the end of the day is really a corporation and is acting in corporate interests over against the interests of the gospel, even while doing it in the name of God. And so we're talking about differentiating between what can we do that will not be poor stewardship, that will not just incinerate money and cause us to no longer be able to do anything, and what can we do to obey God, to share sound doctrine, and make it available to the world in a sustainable way? Because that's a, that's a conversation worth having, and those are ideas worth spreading. And I would just want to add that whatever that attorney with a microphone, because not all attorneys with microphones are bad, but whatever that attorney with a microphone happened to say, it was, of course, complete BS. Because there are ways you can place works into the public domain, and you have no liability that flows from that. I mean, yes, okay, if you are giving instructions on how to make explosives, that may be different, but that's not what we're doing. Yes, what we're handling is actually more dangerous and more important than how to make explosives or weapons, but there's no liability for it under the U.S. legal regime. So there's there's no actual concern there. Apparently one of the pastors should have brought a plus one attorney with him to give the counterpoint to corporate counsel, whatever was said there. I, I think it's worth noting that even if you assume, assume for the sake of argument that say there was something in the small catechism that was copyrighted by somebody else. And so we couldn't give it away because we can't give away something that we don't have the rights to apart from publishing. Yes, either remove it or confess that CPH, if they had incorporated something that was copyrighted by others who would not give us some unlimited rights of distribution, that was sin. 
that was yes. error to to encumber the word of God in such a way that it couldn't even be shared. So either way, that situation in 2016 can be parsed. It was an act of evil. Either the evil had occurred years before, and they had then just stumbled into this pit where there was no way to get out without doing harm, or there was deception on the part of the attorney that bullied and frightened everyone into not sharing the word of God when we're commanded by God to do that. All right, this is not a case of, oh, I guess we can have a discussion and maybe it could go one way or the other. God commands us to spread the word of God. And that includes not just the text of the Bible itself, but anything that is sound doctrine that's derived from it. If you have something good that is a clear exposition of Scripture that will be fruitful for the, the benefit of the faithful anywhere in the world, and you refuse to share that unless they pay you, you're doing something evil. And if your first concern is, how do I get paid? How are you a Christian? Like, there, there are parables that talk about people getting paid, but it's generally pagans that are concerned about their wages. And Or it's, as you said earlier, it's about the inverse relationship, where it's those who owe the wages are due to pay them in order to be just. That's a question of justice. That's not a question of economics. And we, we need to get Christians to understand that there, there are effectively three types of content today, well, four really. In the printed realm, you have the very most premium, you know, cowhide you know, or, or calf or whatever, uh, very nicely bound leather Bibles on very high quality paper. It might cost you north of 200 bucks. It's an heirloom quality Bible. It's something that you're going to want to give to your kids and your grandkids and hope you'll hope is that it'll be in your family for generations long after you're gone. Then there are the Bibles that are, you know, the same content, same word of God, but they don't have all the bells and whistles. They don't have the extra features that don't alter the word of God, but make it, you know, not as pleasant of a packed tactile experience. You know, the paper's not as expensive, the binding's not as nice. Maybe it won't last as long, but, you know, it's a Bible. If you wear your Bible out, you've been blessed, um, as long as it doesn't happen, you know, three months. And then you have digital things where there's freely available content that it's exact same content. It's it's a Bible, you know, it's a PDF or an ebook or whatever that you can just get and you have access wherever you can read that sort of file. And then in between those, you have the paywall where there's an artificial money changer standing between you and the content which was given to you by God, but you have to pay in order to get to it. And while Bibles are not typically paywalled, although actually most of the translations are, I think, <laughs> many even on Lagos. Yeah. Yeah. And, and precisely because of, because of copyright. Well, we worked hard on this translation. We want to get paid for it. Well, didn't you work on the translation because you thought it was important that the Word of God be clearly expressed to people in yeah, a language a they could understand? Here. Yeah. And that's really what this comes down to. And that's why I mentioned the first commandment. What do you fear, love, and trust the most? Is it getting paid? Do, do you as an author fear that if you don't get paid for your book or for your translation, that God will let you starve? Because there are verses about that too. Or do you believe that what you're doing is service to God and that your reward will be great in heaven? And it's nice to get paid. And we'll, we'll talk in a minute about the ways to get paid that don't involve paywalling. Because again, this is not an attack on people being compensated for their hard work. I want to see more of that. I want to see more authors being paid more money for producing more good works, not less. 
we're, we're pointing in the opposite direction. And as you illustrated with the Germany versus England case, the way we're doing it today is, although it seems counterintuitive, it's actually counterproductive the way we're doing it. And there's also a very real bias here that's almost normalcy bias. This is the way we've always done it. This is just the way things work. Our synod, in the case of the LCMS, was founded by a man who was born before copyright law existed where he was born. So this is not something that has been around for a particularly long time. It is not particularly entrenched. It is entrenched only insofar as it makes billions of dollars. And that is the reason this is such a major part of our legal system and defended so strongly particularly by large corporations, Disney, as mentioned earlier, the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, being one of the big defenders of this, and we've gone into the problems with Disney and some of these large corporations before. But when I was thinking about the issue of copyright and theology, I think one important question is to ask, what is the purpose of these things? What is the purpose of copyright? Well, the purpose of copyright, theoretically, is defended as compensation for those who put in the creative or other effort. We've demonstrated that's not really how it plays out in reality, but that is the argument. But even if you take copyright as achieving its purpose, well, what is the purpose of theology? The purpose of theology is to spread the truth. That's what it should be, at least at its best. And so anything that gets in the way of that is contrary to the purpose of theology. Well, copyright gets in the way of that because copyright makes it more difficult to obtain the works. Particularly today when there is no reason everything couldn't be free online. Now, of course, you yes. have the problem of quantity versus quality. But if you have a reliable production house like Concordia Publishing House, and you have them putting their materials online then you have that stamp that lets people know this is actually worth something. Go here and read these materials. Thankfully, we do have some things online. We have the bookofconcord.org. We have that website. So we have the small catechism, the Triglotta edition. So we have it online in German, Latin, and English. But we don't have some of the editions, some of the explanations, some of the, the modern translations. And I would happily put those on the website. I would put in the effort to put them up, but I know that CPH will not allow it. And we have the same problem with so many other works that are produced by our synod and other groups have the same problems. For instance, try and find the entire backlog of the Lutheran Witness, or God forbid you're trying to find the backlog of the Lutheraner. You won't find it. Someone at CPH, I suspect, probably has this material. It should be scanned. It should be online. These should be available. It should be searchable. You should be able to find this wealth from our forefathers that is supposed to be our legacy. It's supposed to be something that was given to us by them, and we don't have access to it. Even members of Senate don't have access to it, let alone the rest of the world. And it's not as if it would cost a lot of money to do this. Digitizing these materials and putting them online is trivial in cost, and there are people who would be willing to work on it for free. If CPH was willing to just hand me the archive, I will make it available online for free. I will even create an index for it so people can find it. I know they won't do it, but I would put in the effort, the time, and whatever minimal cost there is in bandwidth if they were willing to let me do that. And I think it's worth talking about 
numbers just for a minute. Like talking about numbers on a podcast is a nightmare. So I'm I'm going to try to paint just a I'm going to try to paint a picture in your mind here. I'm not trying to give you a spreadsheet to copy down on a on a whiteboard. So you don't need to understand the numbers or remember them. I'm trying to give a sense of scale here. Um, CPH is a wholly owned subsidiary of the LCMS. Both of those are nonprofits, um, which means that they're, uh, although their financials are all very closely guarded secrets, they are required to file certain bare minimum filings with the IRS. Uh, nonprofits are supposed to file 990s annually. Uh, interestingly for CPH, the last 990 that I can find from them is 10 years old. Uh, they've filed the amended form, uh, the 990T, as recently as 2019. But literally the only number on there is inventory or inventory plus investments, which I discovered looking at the 990. So these numbers are 10 years old. I find it incredibly suspicious and frankly offensive that a church is hiding information about financials. This should be an open book. There is no legitimate reason for our churches to be hiding the performance of it, the, the organs that are being paid for either by our congregations or by the money that we spend on books. And this is about money about books, so we're going to get into that. So in 2012, the IRS filing showed that CPH had about $20 million in revenue from selling books. It was almost $20 million right on the nose. I have no idea what it is now. Um, I can tell you from a sense of scale that I believe the reporting was like 265 employees 10 years ago. And on the website today, it says they have about 165. So they've lost about 100 employees. I would assume that revenue has probably improved, both because of inflation and just because they've, you know, who knows? It's a, it's a secret, and no one knows. There are a couple other numbers that I think are very interesting. On that $20 million in revenue, CPH spent $2.2 million on advertising. Now, I think that that goes directly to the idea of making content available for free. One of the goals of CPH is to to produce, to publish, to make available content produced by Lutherans. Um, it should be exclusively Lutherans, and in theory, everything goes through doctrinal review, but given the amount of things that are not doctrinally sound, I think either that is not occurring or the people who are reviewing it are need to put need to be put under doctrinal review. Uh, all of them are personally accountable to, to Matt Harrison. So ultimately all those doctrinal errors belong to him alone because he is he's where the buck stops for this stuff. But CPH is there to produce content to be made available, you know, you would think to the world if you're Christian. Think about what spending $2.2 million on advertising means. They're, they're doing that because I've been told that not only is CPH tasked with being profit neutral, they're not permitted to lose money, not only in general, but I've been told, and I don't have confirmation of this, but I, I, I believe it's probably true just because it's so consistent with every, everything else that we know and have observed. Not only is CPH going to be profitable or neutral on the overall enterprise, they can't lose money on any project. So anytime they do a new book of any sort, they have to make sure it sells. It's not enough to produce it, to, to make some copies, and then to make it available, you know, make review copies available, word of mouth. They have to advertise it because if that doesn't make money, I don't know what sort of accountability there is because the accountability, again, is all secret. But they have to spend over 10% of their revenue on advertising to make sure that the stuff sells. Now, 
that's not a whole lot of money for a, for a business to spend on advertising. But consider the fact that everything that they are producing can be reproduced for free. In other, in other words, once CPH makes a book, whether it's one of the Arch books or it's one of these books that's produced one of the 25-year-old girls they have on staff, or whether it's one of the scholarly works that's produced by the, the professors at our seminaries on books of the Bible and the, the Concordia Commentary series, by and large, is exceptionally good. It's, it's really a seminal collection that, for the first time that I'm aware of, actual confessional Lutherans are doing this in English. Uh, do you know of any others, Corey? I don't, I don't think I've seen any others. Nothing else comes to mind, no. Yeah, like it's basically the first time in English the Lutherans are doing a systematic approach to the entire Bible, book by book. And so there's, there's low-brow content, there's high-brow content. That stuff is scholarly. Those books are expensive. I think they run like 55, maybe 60 bucks a copy if you don't pre-order. Um, and that's for Even pretty Even they're typical. not cheap. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that, that's not cheap for a scholarly work. Maybe it's worth it in the, the Keynesian sense in that realm. But think about this. Just hypothetically, if instead of doing what CPH is doing today, if they took the same approach to funding upfront the production of the Concordia commentary series, which is, I, I think it's over halfway done, I believe. They produce quite a few of them. They come out four times a year. They're about four volumes a year released. This is the first time, think about this, this is the first time in English that sound Lutheran doctrine and theory has been exposited for an entire book of the Bible in a scholarly fashion. Now, the LCMS is tiny. We're at 1.8 million souls and shrinking every year. Whether or not that, you know, whether or not that continues is subject for another day. But we're not big. But there are hundreds and hundreds of million Christians who speak English who might potentially be interested in that content. Now, again, the the, com the commentaries in particular are scholarly works. You you need to be fluent in Greek and Hebrew in order to really fully engage in the content. But that's only part of the content. The commentary portions, generally you can get by, like I can get by with the commentary portions, the the where they're going through and just sort of discussing the text, even though I don't know how to, I can kind of middlingly read Greek a little bit phonetically, but that's it. I still get a lot of value out of it. Now, if I were a pastor in another denomination who was looking for sound doctrine, Protestant doctrine, just looking for, you know, just what does anyone say? You know, it's typical to go looking for commentaries on various texts. If you're a Reformed pastor or a Baptist pastor who can actually read and you go looking for a commentary series, wouldn't it be incredible if the Concordia commentary was freely available online? If you just download the PDF of that, and there it is, you have it, it costs you nothing. What would that do to all those pastors who are going and looking for that content worldwide if they were able to access what we have locked up behind an incredibly expensive paywall? No one's ever going to do that. No one's ever going to go looking for that unless they already have a very specific reason, which is virtually no one, because most people don't even know Lutherans exist. So rather than spending $2.2 million on marketing, if we gave stuff away for free, what would happen? 
pastors would find it. They would start telling each other about that stuff. Laymen who were astute, who were interested in engaging, would find it. And you know what? If if there were half a million Reformed laymen, probably Reformed, I say that because they're probably the best readers in the in Christendom now. They love theological works. If they were to find this stuff and they say, oh, well, there's this stuff in Greek and Hebrew I can't read, some of them might be tempted to go learn Greek and Hebrew just so they could better understand the commentary. But meanwhile, they're having Scripture exposited by faithful Lutherans who are doing it in a Lutheran way, which if you're Lutheran, you believe is a good thing, to to bring our understanding of Scripture book by book, verse by verse, is an incredibly valuable thing. It's worth far more to us as a church that's shrinking and dying to spread our word to people who've never heard of us by giving that stuff away. And yet would never in a million years would it enter in anyone's mind at CPH to put those PDFs online or to make the Logos, Logos versions available for I was for just free. going to say they do have a, an electronic version and it's only $2,236 for 43 volumes. Yes. And someone asked them about the co- why the, the digital version. version. Yeah. Yes. And so someone actually asked them why the electronic version costs the same as the printed version, even though there's no marginal cost. And the response was that it takes a lot more work to format it for Logos, which is true because you have so many cross-references and things. So there's so a lot a of additional... Time, initially, yes. Yeah, it takes a lot of additional work. But again, that's prototyping work. That's one-off work. You do that once and you don't have to do it again. So that's a sunk cost. And the mind of the CPH executive is, I must recoup my sunk costs. I must make that money back. I cannot lose money on this. What will I do? I will charge a high price to ensure that over the years, that money will trickle back in, and maybe eventually this project will break even. How about, hypothetically, we get rid of that 10% (laughs) marketing budget. Don't market anything. Give everything away for free under one of these licenses where CPH should be credited, you know, including with the URL. So you can find Concordia Publishing House, you can find the LCMS to find the people who produce the content. And then you can use one of the license restrictions that says, you know what, if you're going to modify this, you need to indicate that you modified it. You need to say what you modified. If you want to change what we say, don't attribute it to us. That's reasonable. You don't have to pay us a dime. What would happen? That $2 million that you freed up could be spent directly on producing more commentaries. The, the men who are producing that stuff could be remunerated up front far better than they're being paid instantly. They're not being paid much for this. Even the ones who are taking, if they have to take a sabbatical, which most of them do to do it, someone else is funding the sabbatical. They're not making it from what CPH is paying them. So it's already the case that these books are not profitable. In addition, they're unprofitable and they're paywalled. So no one ever reads them. Even even most of our own pastors don't read them because they can't afford them. And yeah. think especially about the guys in seminary. Imagine you're a poor seminary student, you're first, second, you know, you're maybe fourth year after your vicarage. You really want to have access to this stuff because, you know, Luther's works, Chemnitz's works, the CPA, the commentary series, those should be the crown jewels of Lutheranism. And yet you have to spend 10 grand to get a hold of them. No one's going to be able to do that. There's nothing except for evil that is preventing us from making that stuff available for free. Now, someone may argue, well, some of those translations are copyright encumbered. Okay, spend Hmm. some of that $2.2 and pay somebody. Yeah, retranslate them. There are probably some translation things that need to be fixed because some of the translations were done by Elka for the LW. 
So if we clean that up and we produce ourselves, make it available forever in English. As long as English is spoken anywhere in the universe, you can read and download and use this for free. And then sell physical copies. You can sell physical copies, and they're, they're nicely done. They're pretty nicely bound. The paper's not bad. You could even have nicer ones. We have a number of friends who have said, I wish that I could get you know, a $200 version of the Book of Concord that was nearly as nice yes. as what I can get for one of the Bibles. You can't. There's one that comes from CPH that's it's middling. It costs more. It's not worth what it, what it costs. And it's not nearly as nice as it should be for the contents. You can use those things. And I think that the, the value of making financial transparency is that you could say, look, this copy of the Book of Concord is $200, and there's a 25% profit margin on this. Part of that 25% is going to go back into subsidizing the cost of the general Book of Concord that's freely that's available as a printed bound copy so that those who want a physical copy can get it for less. Because that should be our desire, to have that in the hands of everybody on the planet. And the fact that we don't even think about what can we do to make our doctrine available to more people, who again, who've never heard of Lutherans, they don't care. But if they found something for free that was on the, you know, the book of Luke or something, someone would read it and he would get excited because the content in there is good. And he would tell his friends. And then you know what? You don't need a marketing budget. And I want to particularly mention the, the commercial aspect. We should make it available so that other people can print it commercially too. Because you know what? One of the other publishers would do just that. Yes. And today we think we think of that as, oh, they're going to eat our lunch. No, let them spend their marketing money to spread Lutheran doctrine, to spread sound doctrine, so they can be shared with people and printed material. And it's going to point back to the website where you can also find it for free. No one's going to be tricked into buying the, the book because they didn't know they could get the PDF for free. Digital is not great. D digital is useful for some things. Bound is very useful for many others. And it's a mutually exclusive set. So a lot of people would want both. Digital is instantly searchable. Physical, you can have in your hand. You can highlight it. You can annotate it. You can do all sorts of things. If we just gave the stuff away and said if Zonderban or somebody else wants to publish this stuff and you know give us credit, keep it intact, and do the expensive part of reproducing the physical good, God bless them. May they serve sound doctrine by spreading this far and wide. One of the most egregious examples isn't actually the Concordia commentary, although, yes, it is. It's Luther's works. We have 55, well, actually, however many volumes it is now, 60-something volumes, translated in the American edition, not one is freely available. They're also, what is it, $43 or something a volume. And these are works that are 500 years old. There's no reason, given that we have seminary professors and a number of other individuals in Synod who are theologically trained, competent, and know the original languages, because of course, if you're translating Luther, you have to, at a minimum, know Latin, Greek, and German and hopefully also English, the language into which you're translating, there's no reason we should not have all of these on a website, searchable, indexed, free for the world. And it wouldn't even be that expensive of an undertaking. This is something that could easily be done by a number of seminary professors having a sabbatical to translate a volume here and there. And the yep. only reason it isn't done 
is because you can't theoretically monetize it as easily. The irony, of course, is that they probably would make more, as we pointed out earlier, German authors were making more off of their works than were English authors, despite the English being protected by a copyright regime. Yep. A couple of the other interesting numbers I dug up with regard to uh, CPH's financials from 10 years ago, they have $39 million in investments. That's cash that they're sitting on so that they can make sure that they can continue to be financially independent. <laughs> is that stewardship or is that burying your money in the ground? And from that $39 million, they're generating 800000 a year 10 years ago in investment income. Now, think about if you took 800000 a year and provided $40,000 sabbaticals to 16 professors. Think about the amount of work that could be done by using the money that's already being produced today by their investments. That's just with the investment dividends, effectively. What if we started chipping into that $39 million? What if we said, you know what? I trust in God to provide for me next year. I don't need to sit on $39 million and prepare and hope that a rainy day won't come. I'm going to spend it now to spread the word of God. You don't have to spend it all at once. We're not saying that. We're saying that the problem of we need to charge $60 for a commentary so that we can get our money back on the back end is ludicrous. Pay the, the scholars what it's worth up front for their time, for their expertise, and then make it available to the world, and the money will come back to you. I you know, and it's it's not just the high-end stuff, it's stuff like the small catechism, which is probably the second most important book ever published, period. The the number of people who have been both brought to faith and had the faith explained to them clearly by the, the small catechism, there's no way to compare it. It's so important that in, in third world countries, even the Roman Catholic priests prefer to use Luther's small catechism to their own catechism because it's more clearly written, it's more to the point, and it's it's basic fundamental Christian doctrine. It is a Lutheran take on things, but it's straight from the Bible, and the citations there are scriptural citations. So why isn't that made available for free? I got a book in the mail a few months ago, completely out of the blue. I had no idea what was going on. It, it was literally a paperback book with just a sticker on the back, but it, it was in my mailbox. So I realized that what that meant was that the post office had been handled, handed a big box of these so that they wouldn't get damaged because it was it was perfectly intact. And then the postal carrier went mailbox to mailbox in entire neighborhoods sticking these books in. The book is titled, titled The Great Controversy, which I didn't recognize. There was no uh, attribution anywhere on who it was from. I actually had to Google it to remember that I had heard of this before. It was by Ellen White. This is the Seventh-day Adventist creed that kicked off their cult in the 1800s. Now, if the Seventh-day Adventists care so much about spreading their doctrine that they're literally just stuffing their book in people's Bible, in, in people's uh, mailboxes, why aren't we doing that with the small catechism? Because you know what? Like, I'm... I don't know how many people are going to be interested in seeing this. It's got, they have a brand new cover on it. It's got the Capitol building. They're trying to portray it in terms of politics to juice people's interest. They bury the lead that it's about a cult. What if we said, you know what, this is just Christian doctrine. Here's the small catechism. Maybe not mail it to everyone in the world, but you could, there are lists that will tell you Christian households. That's easy to figure out. If we targeted all of those with some of the 39 million, with you could do a cheap paperback like this too. The, the actual printing cost it was probably four or five bucks if you did it in that sort of volume. Why do Lutherans care less 
about our doctrine than the Seventh-day Adventists care about their cult? That's a serious question. What are we doing with our money, with our resources, that we're charging like 18 bucks a pop for the small catechism with no discounts to anybody? Why are we doing that when pagans can do better with worse? It's worth noting also that the small catechism can actually also be printed as a pamphlet, which has a marginal cost of, what, 15 cents or something utterly ridiculous? Because, of course, that's originally what it was. It was originally a pamphlet. The whole purpose of the small catechism was that it was, one, small, (laughs) two, easy to produce and cheap to produce, and three, could be read and understood by the common man. And and now we make it impossible for the common man. And it, it really is almost impossible, because how many people actually come across the small catechism if they don't know about Lutherans, if they don't go specifically looking for that information. There are Christians in the United States who've never heard of it, which is ridiculous. Yeah. It's completely insane, and you're right. The, if, you, if you look at the new catechism, the new one, the new so-called small catechism, is over 400 pages long. The, the first part from, from Luther himself is like 41 pages. So we could absolutely do small runs. With pictures. Get it. Yeah, <laughs> at minuscule cost, and put that in the hands of everyone, and then make the other versions available as well. You're you're absolutely right. I didn't even think about that. Like we could we could make that available, and that's 41 pages with a lot of space. Like it's mostly wasted space. You could that that's probably like a 12 page pamphlet. Um, I think it was originally it, a either a, a quattro or an octo pamphlet in the <laughs> yeah. medieval printing. I think that's what it yeah. was. So it could literally fit in an envelope. You're talking about a total production cost, a mailing cost, at scale of 50 or 60 cents. We could do that. And who cares if 90% of them end up in the trash? If 10% of people read that and thought, wow, there's something here I've never heard before. Why doesn't my church talk like this? Do you think we would still be a shrinking denomination in 10 years? These are the things that are going to change. There, there are other discussions for other days about things that are going wrong in our churches, but the fact that nobody's heard about us and that we won't freely give away our doctrine to anyone who's potentially interested are chief among them, because they're a testimony to the fact that the Synod is now a corporation. It's no longer a church. It's a corporation that exists for the purpose of preserving the corporation. When Matt Harrison talks about his tenure, he highlights the financial stability. When I was looking at the at the uh, CPH financials and saw that there was uh, 36.5 million of that 39 million was invested in securities. So, oh, that's interesting. Figured, you know, fidelity or something. No, it's invested in the uh, LCMS Foundation, which is a $1.1 billion hedge fund owned by the Missouri Synod, where 500 of the other partner groups under the corporate umbrella, are all stashing their money. Now, it's a good thing to have savings in reserve. I'm not saying that that is erroneous per se. But when your purpose is to accumulate and not to deploy successfully for the sake of the gospel, what is it you're actually doing? Are you running a church or are you running a business? And it's very clear based on the decisions that are being made in our church, and I think in most other churches, that they're all being run primarily as businesses. And you do what you can do if it's going to be affordable. And if you can't make a business case for it, don't do it at all. Unless it comes to some sort of foreign missions where we're just pouring millions and millions of dollars into people 
with languages that have 2,500 words. So it's literally impossible to translate theology into their language because there's no words for 80% of what you need to talk to them about. That we'll spend infinite money on. But English-speaking people, where we already have all of the material and all we have to do is put in an envelope, that will never happen. It will never happen with this group. Hopefully a future group will take some of these ideas and say, you know what, maybe we don't need to use a copyright regime and legal boundaries and legal penalties to prevent the spread of the gospel. Maybe we just give it away and let the Holy Spirit do his work. That's what he has to do. Let's give it a shot. We don't even proselytize German-speaking nations, and we wouldn't have to translate our materials to publish them for our brothers over in Germany. We don't even do that. So we, we don't even have the art, the excuse of there being a cost of translation for some of our failures. We're pouring millions of dollars into Africa and elsewhere. And meanwhile, we have, I think it's two missionaries in Germany. Yeah. And, and we, don't, we don't have any materials available in German except for the Book of Concord, which is available on the website in German. And that's a crucial point that points directly to mine. In Germany and in England, the majority of the confessional Lutheran outreach is not being done to the native populations. When no. they talk, when the when the the Lutheran Church, the e, e, ELCE, is that what it is? Um, Which one? Wherever, in, the, in Germany. In Germany, Selk. Selk. That's S -E -L -K. right. Selk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when they do outreach, when they talk about it, they talk about all the Africans and all the Muslims that they're ministering to. What is going on? Germany, where Lutheranism was invented, where Luther made up a brand new religion for Germans. That's what we're told. And yet no longer do even Germans hold to that made up religion. Now we're teaching Africans who are coming to those countries for not good reasons. There's no outreach in either England or Germany to the native populations. And I don't think we can call ourselves Christian if that's how we're going to behave. Yes, it's good to reach out to people wherever they are, but the fact that we are neglecting our neighbors and our brothers according to their flesh for the sake of aliens, just because they're aliens, and don't, don't believe anything else, it is because they're aliens that these other people are seen as prime recipients of the so-called gospel. Well, you get good boy points for proselytizing to those who aren't like you. Yeah. You're not spreading the gospel if you have to step over your brother to get to another man. I don't care what you tell him. It's not in your heart if you will behave in such a way. And you're, you're absolutely right. Like, everything's in German. Why is that not available? None of that's copyrighted. Like, if, we, if we've typesetted, you know, like all the stuff from Chemnitz and others, make it available for free. Make it available for free. It's not ours to begin with. It's an inheritance. And the fact and that the printing houses exist. Just let yes. them print it. Yeah. And again, if we if we own the copyright for something, gross, but whatever, if we have it so that we can say anyone in the world can produce this free of charge, you can charge money to produce this theological work. Somebody's going to jump on that. And when they start making a little bit of money, word will get around in that small world and others will jump on it too and try to make a nicer version or, you know, translate it into other languages. When you set something free and say, this idea is not mine anymore, this is yours, do what you want with it, you don't know what's going to happen. But when you're talking about the Word of God, it's going to be something good. And it shocks and appalls my conscience that 
we even have to say these things. And the fact that when we say them, people are going to hear them and they're just going to shout, well, what about, well, what about, well, what about? The whatabouts, even with the existing structures, can be addressed in a way that more than offset all the whatabouts. And I think that we're rapidly approaching the point where there's going to be a new denomination where we're going to have to start from scratch. And we're going to have to retranslate this stuff because the LCMS Corporation is going to own the copyrights. And you know what? When that day comes, we're going to put translators to work to do all this stuff right for the last time because it's all going to be given away for free to everyone in the world. And if you think that that church, no matter how small it is when it begins, if you don't think that that church is going to grow like a like something that's never been seen since the days of the Pentecost, I think you're in for a real surprise. This is what Christians should be doing. They shouldn't be wasting time not spending their resources well as we are. We're doing things that have no fruit, and yet we continue to bear bad fruit or no fruit. We, cont- we refuse to shake the dust off our feet on our failed endeavors, and we refuse to try things that have never been tried before. Let's try doing something that's not only Christian, but on paper actually makes sense. How about that? One of the things that came to mind when I was looking at the issue of copyright and theology is that this is very much like indulgences in the Middle Ages. In one sense, it's not as bad, because we are not saying, and I, we in this case being Christendom copywriting works, we are not saying that, well, you earn forgiveness of sins if you pay the money. But in another sense, it's actually worse, because we're saying, well, you don't get the thing that tells you about the forgiveness of sins unless you pay the money. So copyright law in the realm of theology has really become sort of a modern indulgence. Pay the money to get, yes, ex- yeah, exactly. The, the sale yeah, of it's, church offices, yes. Yeah, the, it's, it's... Except it's, we're, not even, we're not even really doing simony right. We're doing it yeah. in, in the most incompetent, terrible way possible. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Like, if you, if you think about, if, if a Lutheran pastor said, you know what, if you want to come hear my sermon, that's going to be $5. Forget the offering <laughs> plate. You need to pay to come in the door. There's a cover charge. Yeah. Like, it... It, it would be stopped within one week. Even the laziest, most malcontent d- district president would put an end to that because it would be so scandalous. We wouldn't be charging for live streams of church services, which probably shouldn't exist anyway. But we, So we don't charge to pray. We don't charge to preach. We don't charge for the sacraments. And yet, because we inherited copyright law from the, envir- the Enlightenment, we think that somehow it suddenly makes sense to charge for the Word of God, and to charge for a faithful exposition of the Word of God. It's all the same thing. Whether something is in a book, or it's spoken, or it's shared with you verbally, either in person or from a a sermon or whatever, it's all teaching or preaching. All of that should be made available for free, if it's theological. Again, setting aside the rest of copyright is fine for this. If it's theological, it should all be made available. And if you wouldn't charge someone a cover charge to come into your parish and to hear you preach, why in the name of God would you have a cover charge for them to have a PDF of what you wrote? If it was worth you writing, why isn't it worth someone reading for free? And you know what? God bless you if you want to set up a tip jar. That's fine. Or if you want a Patreon, that's fine. We're not saying you don't get paid for things, but let the payments be offerings. 
let us return to a Christian ethos where something which is valued is is freely given, and then a free gift is given in return. That is Christian. And we talked last week about usury, about how the Christian mode of lending is you don't expect anything back. If I'll give you $1,000 and not expect to receive $1,000 back, how is it Christian suddenly for me to give you a Bible and expect to get $50 back? That's exactly what CPH does. Now, obviously, there's a cost to the production of the Bible. There was a cost of $1,000 that I lent. Now, CPH obviously wouldn't be giving away free books, and we're not suggesting on a large scale that they would do, not for the nice stuff, the nicely printed stuff. But let's start looking at things that we can give away for free, either in printed material or everything. Again, if you have a book that's printed, you have a PDF. You know, if you have a Mac in particular, the print dialog makes this clear. You can either print to your printer or you can print to PDF. It's functionally the same thing. Yes, there are very, very minor layout differences, perhaps, if you're going to InDesign to actually produce a book. It's irrelevant. If the work is done to produce a book, the work is already finished for a PDF that can be made available tonight on CPH's website for everything. And this is true of all of your churches. If you're in another church, whatever theological writings they've produced, even if we disagree with them, I think they should all be available too. Because I would like to compare and contrast you know, what the Reformed, what Presbyterians, what Baptists write to what we write. And where there are differences, let us speak frankly about those differences and hammer things out. That's what God wants us to do with theology. Put it all on the table and have frank discussions about where Scripture leads and where Scripture prohibits. This discussion is just kind of laying the groundwork for us to be able to have those other discussions, because right now, everything's encumbered. You have to spend tens of thousands of dollars on theological works just to have a minimal library to begin to discuss those things. Give me the PDFs and let me search. If you do that, we're 90% of the way to having frank conversations that at this point really don't even happen because we don't know what the other people believe. We didn't even touch on one of the major problems. There are so many theological works out there that are essentially abandoned, and they are abandoned in the sense they are no longer in print. Good luck finding a used copy that isn't literally falling apart or smells weird. I've found both. And the digital edition just doesn't exist. So you literally cannot get some of these works. So even if you wanted to spend the money to acquire them, there's no option. It does not exist. Why on earth are at least those works not made available publicly? Well, of course, because there's no money in it. We know why. But there are so many works that are just simply out of copyright. Because anything before the 19 almost 30s now, 1920s, is going to be out of copyright. And so at least those materials should be available. And I actually have a question to pose specifically to CPH when someone at CPH has passed this particular episode, which may very well happen. Why is the combination small and large catechism on the Kindle almost $6? Now, I know there is a minimum. I know that you have to charge... A dollar. You have to charge 99 cents because Amazon has minimum prices for based on the size of the file delivered. And I imagine this one fits into the smallest one, which is under three megabytes. I don't see any reason that this should be above that size. And so 99 cents is the minimum they could charge in order to distribute on Kindle. But why is it $6? Why are we charging more than the absolute minimum required by the platform? 
it's just it's egregious yeah even if we had to pay amazon to do it how about we spend some of that 39 million dollars on that <laughs> if they'd let us it, yeah exactly distribute yeah. it for free yeah oh no this... a dollar for someone to actually obtain the word of god in a way he can understand if it is sound doctrine if it is scriptural everyone in the world should have access to it without limitation i i think that's just table stakes to be a christian and again there's so many things like usury like head coverings like girls publishing and leading in the church these are things that became cultural issues because we as a church are so completely subsumed by the na the the culture that we're in we we believe it's still christian and we believe it's still formed by christian values when it's not it hasn't been since before anyone was born living it was born we assume that because we call ourselves christians that whatever we're doing is christian that's not the case either start looking at scripture perhaps with fresh eyes maybe look at scripture at all because they're like things you know we talked about the shaking off the dust how that just vanish and no one ever talked about it again these conversations need to perhaps be had for the first time I think really in history for because copyright is is a novelty and the fact that we're now encumbering translations through copyright makes this the first time in history with the advent of the internet that it's actually possible to have a marginal cost to reproduce something of zero. And again, that's vital. This is fundamentally about electronic distribution. If once you've done the work of producing the PDF or the ebook or the Logos file, there's no more expense. The cost of downloading that, of transferring that, is effectively zero. So the only question remaining for Christians is, how do we pay for that work up front? And our only answer has been exploiting copyright to have piecemeal charges every time someone accesses the work. There are other ways to do it. There are other ways that pagans are doing it today. Maybe we should learn from the pagans how to spread the gospel, because we can't figure out how to do it as Christians, not as well as we should. I want to see a church that is, is enthusiastic about giving away her jewels as the Seventh-day Adventists are, and as all the atheists doing the TED Talks are, because they're evangelical. They, are, they have zeal for their beliefs even though their beliefs are evil and they're going to go to hell. At least they demonstrate zeal for their beliefs. Where is our zeal? Where's our enthusiasm for giving these, these jewels away that could perhaps lead people to salvation or prevent them from falling into despair and falling away from a salvation that they already have? Maybe a book that comes to someone that would be produced by CPH would find them at just the right moment. If one of their friends could give them a PDF, they had the words that they needed for free might not occur to a friend who would never have read it if he hadn't been given it for free, but because you can just pass it on and on and on, and you're not stealing anything because the copies can be infinite. You could fill up every hard drive in the universe with small catechisms, and then you would have to make more hard drives, but no, there, no one has been eliminated by reducing the number of available small catechisms physically. There's no cost of goods. We need to exploit that, and we need to be cognizant of it, and we need to use it to spread sound doctrine. I think the bottom line when it comes to copyright is the two questions and then the nexus that I mentioned earlier. What is the purpose of copyright? 
And then, of course, you also have to think about the effect. What is the purpose of theology? And are these compatible? I think we have convincingly demonstrated the answer to the last is no.